We're, uh, we're continuing a fall series today, fall sermon series, uh, in the book of First Peter. We're, we're working our way all through that, that letter this fall. Uh, the series, as you can see, is called Against the Tide. And uh, we, we pick up this week, we had a little break last week with a guest speaker, the president of Words of Hope, uh, was with us, John Opkenorth. I, I don't know if you were able to uh, be here last week or, or catch that, but that was wonderful. If, if you recall, uh, John changed his sermon last Sunday morning based on a, a kind of prompting of the Holy Spirit that he felt uh, because Words of Hope has a significant ministry in the country of Iran and a significant Persian language ministry. And he shared the story of um, a, a friend of the ministry who had come out of Iran to attend a conference that was happening, a, a woman that we know quite well in that ministry, who had been arrested in the recent uh, you know, rioting and uprising that's going on in Iran, and we were praying for her. We received the great news that she was released this week. We're thankful for that. She's fine. Uh, she has fled her home city where the uh, police forces had arrested her, so she's putting some physical distance between her and those people who arrested her. So we're grateful for that. Um, we'll, we'll continue to pray certainly for the Iranian people uh, suffering under an unjust regime, right? A brutal regime there. And in some way, that reality in Iran uh, segues into our topic for the day in this passage from First Peter, which, which has to do with suffering injustice because of our faith in Jesus. That's what we're focused on today. That's what Peter writes about in the, the part of the letter we're addressing. The Gospel of Mark, as you might recall, is based on the Apostle Peter's notes about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That's our best understanding, is that Mark's Gospel summarizes Peter's witness and experience. So I want you to call to mind the Apostle Peter. If, if you know something about the Bible, recall his life, will you? Remember, he's the one who denied Jesus uh, three times the night before Jesus was uh, executed. I guess that, the night of that. Um, and, and Peter was restored by Jesus later. Often referred to as impetuous Peter. Wore his heart on his sleeve, right? The first guy to jump out of the boat and try to walk on water. He was all heart and, and all in. That's the guy who wrote the letter we're reading today. Just let that sink in. Christian tradition has it that at the end of his life, when Peter was being executed for his faith, he requested to be crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to suffer as his Lord had. That's the guy who wrote this letter. And just to be clear, the goal we're pursuing here as a church is following Jesus. Not just thinking well of him, not just believing religious ideas about him, or learning more about the Christian faith, as profitable as all those things might be. Our goal is to become more and more like our Lord, to humble ourselves before the Lord, to submit to him, to pursue a life that looks more and more Jesus-shaped, if you will, more and more like Jesus was living our life in our spaces, in our place. In this letter, Peter addresses 
Christians living in difficult circumstances in a difficult culture, and he urges them to live against the tide of that culture, not just to go with the flow, but to live against the tide, to be different, to be set apart for God's special use in the world, because God is up to something in this world. Jesus showed that very clearly. In short, to be in the world, but not of the world. How do you actually do that? And in this middle section of the letter of 1 Peter, the apostle uses three real-life situations that all of his readers would have understood from a kind of cultural, contextual uh, perspective. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Brian touched on the first of those, which uh, has to do with how to live well as a citizen of a nation with a culture that does not share your values as a follower of Jesus. So the passage we're looking at this week takes the second real-life situation and talks about living well through injustice, injustice suffered because we're followers of Christ. So let's listen now to to the scripture. Would you follow along with me from the second chapter of 1 Peter? Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, This is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. So I remember the the conversation distinctly. I didn't grow up in the church, came... Uh, to Christ as a senior in college, and I was chatting with my longtime friend, my best friend from middle school and high school. Uh, He was not a believer, and we were talking about my kind of newfound faith. And one of his biggest arguments against the faith came from the passage we just read today. Here's what he said. Look, the the Bible tells slaves, slaves, to submit to their masters, 
even their harsh masters who abuse them. How in the world could I possibly sign up for a belief system that doesn't only not condemn slavery, but tells slaves to stay put in an abusive position? I did not have a good answer back then. I knew there, there must be a good answer. I just didn't know what it was. And you've got to be honest, when you look at the passage, your mind can go the way my friend's mind went. Look at it again. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those, are, to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it's commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because you are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that's commendable before God. Now, slavery in the ancient world was much different than what we have probably as our first image of slavery, which is slavery in the United States pre-Civil War uh, kind of thing. In the ancient world, most slaves were descendants of people captured in, in foreign wars. They were household servants, and uh, most of them could expect to work their way to freedom someday. There was a pretty clearly defined path to that. Uh, but that said, uh, slavery is slavery. Right? And as my friend pointed out, what's up with slavery in the Bible? We all know it's wrong, and my friend would argue that the Bible never comes out and says, it's wrong to own a human being, quit it. Uh, but to understand this passage, to understand big chunks of the Bible, right, we need a, a different kind of lens, uh, a, a consistent way of interpreting the Bible. And that's a larger conversation. But with regard to slavery, if you, if you read the Bible with this kind of interpretive lens to try to see what God is doing in the big picture, and you ask what was going on in the context when the Bible wrote, writer wrote this letter or, or book, and what was the redemptive movement being suggested, if you take that lens, you can see the big arc of salvation history must lead to the freedom of all people. Right, Every human being created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect for that reason alone. Our, our fundamental belief about creation, our fundamental belief about every single person in this room, really every single person in the world, right? So that's a larger conversation, but it, it is clear from the, the arc of the story of the Bible that not only does the Bible not support slavery, the Bible charts the path for its complete elimination. But the question we're talking about today, uh, and maybe uh, having to do with those Christians back then, is, you know, what, what do you do when you suffer injustice because of your faith? I mean, are we called to be kind of Christian doormats? Let people walk all over us? Is that, is that the calling? I mean, the instruction is that slaves are to submit to both good and harsh masters. That, that word in the original language, harsh, literally meant crooked or bad masters. People who might 
abuse their servants for no apparent reason, or in fact, might even abuse them when the person's trying to do the right thing. Just completely crooked, bent. And Peter says, submit to them. What? See, these servants were were powerless to change their situation. They had no options. It was not within their power to exit the unjust situation in which they found themselves. So the question for followers of Jesus is this. How do you as a follower of Jesus live faithfully in that situation when you find yourself stuck in an unjust situation, powerless to escape it, what are you to do? Uh, The point here is to obey God always, even when we're suffering injustice. And I'm, I'm keenly aware that this is super easy for me to say, but we have friends in the room who have suffered tremendous injustice, physical abuse, because of their faith. It's one thing for me, John, safe, secure, suburbanite, to talk about this. It's something completely different to live by this in the real world that is persecuting Christians harshly. But at the end of the day, the truth is the truth. We are to abstain from evil and do good regardless of the behavior of others around us or the particulars of our situation. And even as foolish as it seems, Peter says, if you suffer for doing good and endure it, that's commendable before God. If you suffer for doing good and endure it because you are conscious of the Lord, conscious of God's presence, Talk about pushing against the tide of culture. I mean, right, largely the message of culture is do unto others before they can do unto you, right? Or if I get hit, I'm going to hit back harder. I mean, it's retaliatory. Gladly, Peter explains a little bit more. He gives us the why behind his thinking here. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. to, To this you were called. What's the this? It's the suffering for doing good. Bearing up under injustice because you're, you're conscious of God. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Because Christ suffered for us and left us an example to imitate. In the original language, that word example referred uh, to students learning grammar. It was the letters that were set out for students to copy so that they could learn their alphabet. If you think uh, a, a big letter tracing paper, put it over, and the kid goes, Christ left us that example, that template. We're to pattern our lives on the example of Jesus. 
And what was that example? I mean, the passage unpacks it, right? He, he committed no wrong. He spoke no wrong. When insulted, he didn't retaliate. Now go with me for a moment back to your inner dialogue and think with me about the last time you were insulted. Like the, the, deep, the deep one that hurt. What goes on in the inner dialogue, right? You know as well as I do. We're hitting back. Maybe, maybe you're better than I am. <laughs> I'm hitting back. My mind goes to the courtroom scene and I'm making the case against that person and how bad they are and how dare they because everybody should know I'm good. I'm not that bad. That's what's going on in there. When insulted, he didn't retaliate. When suffering, he didn't threaten. Probably a whole sermon there about a Christ-like use of power but when he was vulnerable and suffering, not only did he not retaliate, he did not threaten retaliation. That's a whole nother level. Instead, he entrusted himself to God, the just judge. And, and Jesus didn't just model this approach, he taught it too. Look at what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm just so firmly convicted that in the cultural reality in which we're living in this day, in our culture, these are profound truths. <laughs> profound truths. It's the grammar letter set before us that we're to imitate, to make our lives look like that, like, like Jesus' life. Uh, some of you might have heard of Christian author and speaker Shane Claiborne. Uh, he's probably best known for founding a faith community in inner city Philadelphia called The Simple Way. He simply wanted to set up camp in a really rough part of Philadelphia and, and minister to the neighbors, particularly focused on students. So their, their uh, motto is simple, love God, love people, and follow Jesus. And I heard a radio interview with Shane a couple of years ago. It was quite profound for me. I'd like you to listen to a little snippet of that. Well, I, I think that's true. And I think that Jesus, when he's telling us these things like turn the other cheek, he's, he's, he's speaking to people who had been slapped. You know, he's speaking mm -hmm. to people who are peasants and revolutionaries and people that were uh, confronted with violence every single day. And, uh, and yet it's not a cowardly, like just sort of, well, just get stepped on. But it, it, I think every one of the instances that Jesus is showing us in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you know, if a person uh, slaps you on your cheek, turn your other cheek. And if someone asks you to walk a mile, go two miles, all those things were 
were were very real realities that that confronted evil, but not on its own terms. It, it, confronted it, evil without mirroring evil. Right. In, in fact, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was walking down the street with uh, Kasim, who's a young man on my block, and uh, a bunch of teenagers jumped us, and they uh, started calling us names and throwing stuff at us, and they were just ready for a fight. You know, they were, mm-hmm. they were just uh, trying to stir it up, and and uh, we we keep walking, and then I said, you know, let's not let's not run from them. Let's go back, and and we we introduced ourselves, and Kasim's thinking like, what in the world? You know, we we introduced ourselves to them, and I said, oh, my name's Shane, it's Kasim, and um, they they totally didn't know what to do with that. You know, they're ready to fight, and uh, right. then we keep walking, and then one of them hits uh, my my friend Kasim on the on the head with a uh, a oh, club. Gosh. And I mean, at that moment, my my instinct is like, God, where are you? You know, why did you? We tried not to fight these kids, you know. And then I turn around, and I don't know what happened. It it just sort of snapped for me. And I looked at them, and I said, "You guys are created in the image of God, and you're made for something better than this." These kids looked at us, and they were total. They had no idea what to do with that, and they just sort of like disintegrated into every different direction, you know, and Kasim looks at me and he goes, what was that? And I'm like, I don't, I don't was he know all right? what it was, you know. Oh yeah, he was okay. And he came home and listen to what he said. He said, when we got home, he goes, Shane, you know, we get to go to bed tonight thinking that we acted like Jesus. Hmm. And those kids have to go to bed thinking about how they acted. I mean, a real life example, um, whether you think it was wise to go back or not is a different conversation. But, but that's it, right? The, the Jesus way. When they insulted, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And I don't know where you're at in your journey of faith. Maybe you're at the front end kind of considering the claims of Jesus. Maybe you've been trying to walk with the Lord for years and years and years. Uh, but when, when, it, when it gets down to it, right, isn't this one of the hardest things to kind of live out? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's, it's a brand new possibility for living. And for me, whenever I see that starting to crop up in someone, I, you just know that that's the Holy Spirit. God is doing that because it's beyond all of us to do on our own, right? A a former mentor of mine, Bill Brownson, put it this way in a book he wrote on 1 Peter. Someone else's hate doesn't have to get inside of us and, and turn us sour. We can begin to meet ugliness with love. We can begin to meet ugliness with love. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. put it a different way in his letter from Birmingham Jail. You can threaten our children and we will still love you. You can burn down our houses and we will still love you. You can put us in jail. You can put your dogs on us and we will still love you. But be ye assured, we will wear you down by our love. That's the Jesus way. That's that's what disciples do. That's how we're instructed to live well through injustice. 
Another reflection on this uh, from a, a former member of our own church, Paul Hostetter, who wrote a series of devotions for words of hope on 1 Peter. Here's what Paul said. People learn the most about Jesus when they respond to unjust suffering as he did. Now we're still thinking this is completely unrealistic. How is that even possible? No way I can do it on my own. You're right. We can't. But here's the thing about following Jesus. Jesus isn't just our example, as if he kind of gave us a pattern and we've got to do it all on our own. Jesus is the one who empowers us to be more like him by the Holy Spirit. We, we have new life in Christ. Remember, this is where Peter started the whole letter as he wrote to people living in a culture that was opposing their faith and, and ultimately uh, uh, perpetuating injustice against them. His first thing, remember, was remember whose you are. Peter wrote this, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. New birth, a new identity in Christ. Uh, New birth. Way back, Charles Wesley was once asked why he preached so often about Jesus' teaching on our need to be born again. His answer? Because we need to be born again. That's why I talk about it so much. That the tide of our culture would have us believe that all spiritual paths eventually end up at God. The the unspoken mental image is God isn't here with us now. God is up there, out there somewhere, maybe on the top of some great mountain, uh, a a bit like uh, climbing the Himalayas or something, right? And we have to exert tremendous effort along our spiritual path, whatever path we happen to choose, to make our way up the mountain to where God is. And in the end, whatever path you choose doesn't matter because they all converge up there ultimately. That's the message of culture. But the message of Jesus is quite different than that. He didn't say, hey, my way is, you know, one of the nice paths to the top. And I I invite you to try this one. The message of Jesus is, hey, everybody, you can forget the mountain deal because the God who lives up there has come down here to us. You don't have to climb the mountain. In fact, you would have never made it to the top anyway. Because the problem is not the lack of our religious or spiritual effort. The problem is that we're broken. We're we're bent. The Bible word is sinful, right? And the best theological understanding of that is sin is not simply something we do wrong every once in a while. The problem is that we're naturally inclined to do wrong things. It's a nature problem, not a behavior problem. It's a nature problem that manifests in a behavior problem, certainly, but we can't just fix our sin by behaving better. We need to be saved. That's what the Bible's talking about. And, and the great news of Scripture is that the God up there loves us so much that he came down to us, moved into our neighborhood, became one of us, and took upon himself everything that was broken and wrong in us 
so that we might be restored to a relationship with God. Look, it's right here in the text. He himself, that's Jesus, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is uh, the, the great substitution, right? Substitutionary atonement, the great exchange. Jesus took on our sin and death that we might have his purity and life. And let's be very clear here. Making the gospel explicit is very important in our day and time because there's a great misunderstanding that this whole deal is about Jesus only forgiving us for things we've done in the past. And then we're left feeling like we need to keep ourselves clean moving into the, into the future. Now, certainly, we have work to do, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is forgiveness, yes, but the second half is that we get the perfect righteousness of Jesus. When we place our trust in Christ, Jesus doesn't just forgive us for everything we've done wrong in the past. He gives us, to quote Tim Keller, the perfectly validating performance record of Jesus so that when God looks at us, he sees the perfect life of Jesus. So with that understanding, I invite you to think on what this scripture means when it says, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. What does it mean to live for the reality that you have received the perfectly validating performance record of Jesus? That that is the truth about you. And we struggle with these simultaneous truths, right? That's who God has declared us to be. And all the while, here in the trenches, you and I both know that we're not following Christ as faithful as we could. We're screwing up all the time. We're actually choosing to screw up of our own will part of the time. We hold those things in tension, but we do not give up the truth that in Christ, God has declared us to be justified, which means perfectly validating performance record of Jesus. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus' resume. So what does it mean to live for that? You can pray on that. See, the very end of the Bible extends the invitation that is open to us always. The spirit and the bride, bride meaning the church now, the bride of Christ, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let those who hear say, come. Let those who are thirsty come. And let all who wish take the free gift of the water of life. The invitation is open. And the reality is that even some of us who've been in the church for years and years and years need to be converted. We all need to keep coming back to Christ, certainly. But the reality is that not everybody in the physical building of a church has come to Christ. So I invite you, turn to Jesus. What he did on the cross was real. And it's a bigger conversation, but I'd love to have it. This is so categorically different from every other religion in the world. The claim is unique and anchored in history. It's not just philosophical or, or, or ideological. 
based in historical claim, which we can kind of research and see if it has any merit. The claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. He is who he said he was. He did what he said he came to do, taking our sins in his body on the tree. And he invites you to return to him right now from wherever you've been, from whatever you've been up to. You know, the, the son and the father in the prodigal son story. The father's looking down the road just waiting for the son to show up again. So come home. Take the free gift of the water of life. That exchange is open to you. All you have to do is say yes to as much of Jesus as you understand it right now by confessing your sin to the Lord, asking him to forgive you and to give you the righteousness of Jesus and asking him to help you by the Holy Spirit to grow in your new faith. That is available to us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your help. Thank you for coming to earth in the person of Jesus. Thank you that all of this is true. Sometimes we feel the fog and the mist and things don't seem clear to us, but uh, by, by the faith that you have given us, we cling to the hope of Jesus. Thank you that you've declared us to be righteous, perfect before you. Help us to live for you in that righteousness. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.